and we do want to say a happy Memorial Day weekend to all of you. Uh, and before we honor those who are currently serving, we want to honor those uh, who have uh, who have served in the past. I had a uh, had a gentleman come up and say, Christian, you ought to do it by eras instead of just having everyone stand who has uh, who has served in the military or is serving right now. Um, he said, you ought to you ought to do it by eras. So certainly on Memorial Day, we remember those uh, whose memory. Um, they, they gave their life for ours. If you've ever been to Washington, D.C. and you've been to Arlington Cemetery um, or you've ever been to a military cemetery, you understand the great cost that it took to make America what it is. And we thank the men and women and the families who sacrificed as a part of that. But if you're in here, um, and I don't know that we have anyone, but if you're in here and you served during the World War II era, would you stand right now? Do we have any World War II vets in here. That is a long time. There's not very many left. How about the Korean or the Vietnam era? Would you stand if you served in either one of those eras? And Rick would say thank you. Just stay standing if you would. Um, how about anyone, uh, anyone who served during that first Gulf War, kind of late 80s, early 90s? Any, any of you who served during that time? And let us say thank you to, uh, to those of you who did that. Stay standing if you would. And then uh, anyone who, who has served in the last 25 years or have ever been in active duty military, would you please stand right now so that we can say thank you. So, Gentlemen, thank you. And the uh, ladies and gentlemen that are represented with those families, thank you. You can be seated. Uh, and I want to say I know we've got a couple right now that are in boot camp. Uh, one of our young men who, uh, who I just told is going to be back early July. So we want to stop right now. We want to pray for everyone uh, serving anywhere in the world right now, whether they're in boot camp or on the front lines. We want to pray for them. We want to pray for their families. Uh, I don't know if you heard just this week a, uh, a soldier from Overland Park was killed in Afghanistan. So probably next week uh, his family will, uh, will lay him to rest. So at a great cost every day, men and women are protecting our country to make it what it is. So let's stop and thank God for them right now. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we thank you for the United States of America. And, Lord, for the ability to live here uh, and really to thrive here. Lord, when you go to other parts of the world, every one of us is really thriving because of the place that we live. Uh, God, we pray for our country. Uh, we pray for our president, for our senate, for our congress, for our supreme court, uh, for the men and women who are leading our country. And we specifically today pray for those uh, men and women who are serving the United States of America all over the world. We pray that you would protect them. We pray that you might give them comfort. We pray that you might be right there with them wherever they are. And then, Lord, be with, uh, with the husbands and wives and fiancés and, and moms and dads and sons and daughters who are back here waiting on them. Thank you for the men and women of our armed forces, uh, Lord, who lay their life on the line so that, uh, so that we can live life uh, without really worrying about anything. And God, tomorrow when we barbecue and we don't go to work and we enjoy a day sleeping in and hanging out and doing yard work, may we remember why we truly have a day off tomorrow uh, and stop to thank God for the men and women of our armed forces and to pray for them and their family. I pray for this Overland Park family, Lord, who, uh, who lost uh, a son and, a, and a, uh, a, Lord, a, a man from their community last week. Just pray that you'd be with all the friends and family of, uh, of that young man as they lay him to rest next week. And then, God, as we get into your word today, uh, bless us uh, as we study your word and as we try to learn how to live life walking in the footsteps of Jesus. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So last Sunday uh, afternoon, I left church, and we headed down to Sedalia, Missouri, where uh, my son Christian was playing in his baseball tournament. He had two games on Saturday, uh, and then his last game was Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock. So we finished setting up. 
And we headed down to Sedalia for his final afternoon baseball game, which they played well in. They won in. Uh, and then on the way back, we were on the way home. And it was kind of in that hour where if we waited till we got home to eat dinner, it was going to be too late. Uh, but it really wasn't time for a sit-down dinner. So we said, let's just grab something fast. So we went through McDonald's and grabbed something for the kids. And I have just grown tired of eating fast food. So we got the kids something at McDonald's. And I told Daniel, I'm going to grab something at the gas station. So we go to the gas station, fill it with gas. Um, and, and I went in, and nothing was really looking good. So I bought this teriyaki, uh, this teriyaki um, uh, beef jerky, uh, teriyaki Slim Jim beef jerky. I'd never seen it, and I thought, you know, beef jerky normally tastes like garbage, but I know it's good for you, so uh, teriyaki, why not? So I get it. And the minute, like, I open it in the car, like, the whole car smells like teriyaki beef jerky for this hour and a half ride home. Oh, this is terrible. Uh, but, you know, I ate it, and it was pretty good, ate half of it. Threw it in the floorboard, left the other half. I thought I would take it inside when I got home. Got home, forgot to take it inside. Next morning, went to open my car, and literally, uh, that teriyaki beef jerky had been marinating in my car overnight in my hot garage. And, like, I opened the door, and, and I think you could see it just come oozing out of the car. Uh, oh, this is terrible. So I took it out, and I threw it away, and that day I rode around with my windows down. All day long, I thought, man, i got to get this smell from this beef jerky out of my car. Well, Tuesday uh, you know, morning, didn't go away. Tuesday afternoon, didn't go away. Tuesday evening, didn't go away. So I put all my windows down in my garage, and I thought, surely by tomorrow it'll be gone. Tuesday morning, went to work out. It was still there. Rode with the car windows down all the way to work out and back on Tuesday morning. Tuesday afternoon, got in to go to lunch. And as soon as we got in the car, Dan said, what is that smell? And I said, I think it's my leftover Beef jerky. I left it in the car overnight, and my car stinks now. So we went to get lunch and came home, and we got home and parked the car in the garage, and Daniel said, Christian, that's not beef jerky, man. There's something dead in this car. Um, so she said, you need to clean out the car and find out what smells. So, you know, I started, it, it was a baseball weekend, so we had chairs, we had coolers, we had baseball bags, we had baseball socks and shoes and just everything. So I'm one by one picking out the car, can't find anything. So I start taking the seats down in the back, and I take down one of the seats, and there is Casey's chocolate milk from McDonald's, tipped over, all over the carpet. And now it's more like chocolate yogurt or chocolate cottage cheese than chocolate milk, actually. You know what I'm talking about? You, you know, so I saw it, and you know, you thought, like, get, like, you know, like, you just, like, feel like you're, th- I mean, it was so bad. You know, I, I just, it kept almost vomiting in my mouth. So I went and I told Danielle, you know, I, I brought Casey to the deal and said, Casey, is this your chocolate milk? Yeah, where'd you find it? It was under the seat in my car, which has been 100 degrees for the last few days. And now, Casey, we're going to have to sell my car. I mean, that's how bad that it smells. So Daniel says, you've got to go clean it out. I said, man, I don't want to clean it. She said, you've got to clean it out. So I go out there, you know, and I'm spraying it with stuff. And, like, I'm, I'm scrubbing it. So now, like, my hand smells like chocolate cottage cheese. And, by the way, it's like the dairy produce, the only people that can teach us to continue to eat stuff, the more rotten it gets. I mean, it goes from milk to yogurt to cottage cheese to cheese to, I mean, blue cheese is literally mold, and some people just put that on their salads and eat it like it's nothing. But I'm cleaning this out, and, and after I got everything cleaned out, threw away the floor mats, I mean, scrubbed, sprayed, scrubbed, sprayed, took it out in my driveway. My neighbors will tell you, my doors, I left the doors of my car open in my driveway for an entire day, just hoping it would blow out. And today, still, there is a remnant of spoiled chocolate milk in my car when you get in. It's just like, I, I just, I think it might hang on forever with us in the car. The only thing that helped mute the smell this morning is my son, I believe, put on an entire bottle of cologne this morning. So as we were riding to church, 
It actually smelled good. But if I don't throw him in the back of the car, it, it may stink really, really bad. And you know what I found out? As I was thinking about how this smell hangs on, as we look at the last of our words with friends that we've been studying, we, and we've been in a series since Easter morning studying life-impacting words. We've looked at the word of imagine. We've looked at the word balance. We've looked at the word forgiveness. We've looked at the word blessing. We've looked at the word shame. We've looked at the word impact. And we've seen what the Bible says about all those words. Last week we had almost 50 people in our church um, sign up to say, I want to make an impact by serving in our church. And next Sunday morning we've got orientation. Every part of this church, somebody's training somebody to do something to help make an impact for the kingdom by serving God at a church. But the word we look at today is a word like that chocolate milk that just hangs on your life. And sometimes you wonder if it's ever going to go away. And that is the word discouragement. So if you have your Bible today, I want you to open to Psalm chapter 42, and I want you to take those sermon notes. We handed you a little piece of paper with a pen when you came in so that you could take notes and learn today. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, our ushers are coming down the aisle. We love to open the Bible, read the Bible, teach the Bible, write in our Bibles, learn the Bible here. So if you forgot your Bible, wave at the usher. They'll give you one. Um, if you just forgot yours at home, you can keep this. If you don't have a Bible, this is yours to keep. Uh, we've given away almost 300 Bibles since our church started uh, a little over eight months ago. And, man, maybe our greatest contribution to this community is, is giving away Bibles so people have a copy of God's Word, which does the work of God's ministry. God really doesn't uh, always need the church and preachers and pastors. Sometimes just the Word of God will do enough. And today we find ourselves in Psalm 42. And in Psalm 42, we find one of the, uh, man, one of the most discouraged men in the world writing a psalm. It's not named. I wish we, we knew that this was David or a specific person and knew what was surrounding this situation. We don't. We just know in Psalm chapter 42, someone is really, really discouraged. And Psalm 42 starts this way. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Now, if you grew up in the late 80s in youth ministry, this verse probably sounds familiar because there was some guy with a mullet and a cardigan on a synthesizer. And like you sang this every Wednesday night at youth group. Remember? As the deer pant. And, and then you listen to Michael W. Smith and a little bit of Petra and a little bit of Striper and uh, Sandy Patty. Don't laugh. Y'all had those tapes just like I did. I, if you grew up in a house like me, your mom and dad, you know, and your little Walkman and your tape and you get to the end of one side and you stop it, you'd open it. You flip the tape around and put it in. Our kids would think we were out of our minds today if we showed them a Walkman. Or they think they would uh, had discovered gold. Uh, but Psalm 42, that you've sung this song if you've, if you've grown up in church. It's actually one of the songs. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. I'm going to continue in the psalm, but here's the first picture we see of discouragement. Somebody feels like they can't ever catch their breath. Have you ever found yourself at a spot in life where you're so discouraged, you're so overwhelmed, it, it is like the goal of your day just to take one deep breath? You know, we use the phrase heart palpitations in today's society. You know, you know I had a heart palpitation. That's what this author's describing here. He's so overwhelmed with discouragement. He doesn't feel like he can ever catch his breath. He feels like a deer that's running through the forest and just like needs a drink of water. It's going to drop over dead. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O oh God. My soul, my soul thirsts for God, the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, where is your God? He says, I cry myself to sleep every day. I wake up crying. Verse 4, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how, how I used to go to the house of God. Man, if you have your Bible open, you need to underline that. What's another picture of discouragement? Someone who's quit going to church. 
Man, I'm so discouraged I can't even go to church. Show me a Christian who hadn't been able to go to church for five or six or eight or nine months, and I'm going to show you a Christian who's discouraged. These things I remember how I used to go to God, used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one. And I went to church with joy and praise among the festive throng. And now, man, I can't even go to church because I'm just so discouraged. Verse 5, why my soul? And then he begins to ask himself a question. Why am I so discouraged? Why my soul? Are you so downcast? Why is my soul so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God for all. Yet praise him, my Savior, my God. My soul is downcast within me. So first he asks the question, why is this happening? And then he states a fact. I don't know. I just, I'm so discouraged. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I'll remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep and the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me all day long, saying all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Man, if there is a better picture of discouragement in Scripture, I I couldn't find it. Psalm 42 is the picture of a Christian person who loves God, who has seen God work in his life, who has seen God move in his life, but someone who at this point in their life is just overwhelmed with discouragement. And they know that they can pray, and they know that they can go to church, and they know they can remember the great things that God has done, but that isn't helping. They're still just so discouraged. And they don't have the answers, but they know that they're discouraged. You know, today we're going to skip past the question of if. Um, you know, can, can a Christian be discouraged? Certainly they can. Today we're going to skip past the question of why. Well, why do Christians get discouraged? Because really we're going to find a, a multitude of answers in Scripture, and sometimes you don't even know. But today we're going to skip right to the point that people get discouraged. And we're going to try today to identify discouragement in some of your lives. And we're going to try to find out today how to deal with discouragement. If you're not discouraged right now, you will be one day. So you want to pay careful attention today. If you know someone who's living with discouragement, and you know the, the discouragement capitalized is depression, if you work your way, way all the way there. Today we're going to talk about discouragement. We're going to talk about depression. We're going to talk about that fog that hangs on our life and just makes us feel down all the time from the context of Scripture. And we are today going to learn how to wrestle. If you look at the title of my Bible study today on the top of your notes that we gave you, today we're going to look at wrestling with the beast of discouragement. And I've got beast on there, and I've got it all capitalized for this very reason. If you've ever had a period in your life where you have struggled with discouragement, if you are in a period of your life right now where you're struggling with discouragement, if you're at a point in your life right now where you are struggling with depression, then you know one of the best ways to describe it is just a beast. Some, not a monkey on your back, but something that is trying to tear your life apart. Something that doesn't allow you to catch your breath. Something that doesn't allow you to sleep well at night. Something, according to Psalm 42, that even makes your body not feel good. It's not just an emotional, mental thing. Your body doesn't feel good when you're discouraged and when you're depressed. How do we deal with this from a biblical standpoint And how do we try, if we're at a point right now where maybe we're discouraged about something, how do we try to move away from it? That's the goal of today's Bible study, learning to wrestle with the beast of discouragement. And today I'm going to try to give you three things about discouragement that we can learn. And then I want to give you ten tips 
to overcome it or try to begin to move out of it in your life. Some of this is going to be on your message notes. Some is not. So you might have to take a lot of extra notes today, but, uh, but that's okay. Write in your Bible, write on your notes, um, find a scrap piece of paper, uh, and we're going to get going. The first thing we see in Scripture as we look at Scripture is we see the misery of discouragement in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't have your Bibles, you don't have to. It's going to be just a few pages back to the left in your Bible. And in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we meet a, uh, we meet a woman who's so well-known. There's a lot of names in the Bible. We're getting ready to read a bunch of them uh, that no one in this generation will ever be named, hopefully. Uh, but then there are names in the Bible that have carried on for generations because of the reverence and respect people have had for them. And in the misery of discouragement, if you just want to jot it down on your sermon notes, we're going to look at a woman named Hannah. Uh, some of you in this room have daughters named Hannah. Some of you, if you're school teachers, have people in your school named Hannah. Some of you have friends named Hannah. This is a name that's lasted now almost 5,000 years. Why? Because of Hannah, who we're introduced to in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and her story. But her story is one of misery. Her story is one of discouragement until we see God move in her life. And maybe some of you today, if you were to be real honest, are where Hannah is. You're at church, but if you could be really honest, you're really discouraged this morning. You don't know whether God can help you or not. He hadn't helped you up to this point in dealing with what you're dealing with. And like your only prayer, if you could have one thing, you just want God to lift the discouragement. That's where Hannah was in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now, we're going to read through verse 18. So a lot of reading today as we look through narratives of discouragement in Scripture. Uh, but I want, to, I want to show you kind of what discouragement looks like. It says, There was a certain man from Ramathaim, that was a, a city in Israel, a Zephite, that's kind of the family he was from, from the hill country of Ephraim, that would be the state that he was from, whose name was Elkanah, son of Joraham, son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zeph, and Ephraimite, like I said, aren't you glad that not all the names from the Bible carry over uh, to, uh, to our age? He had two wives. Now, this is an interesting thing we find from time to time in the Bible. It's never, uh, it's never said in the Bible that you should have two wives. As a matter of fact, the Bible says you should only have one wife. Um, but often in Old Testament Scripture, you find that guys have more than one wife. Uh, I asked one of my college professors this at one point in time. I said, hey, what's up with the, uh, the Bible? Allowing people in the Old Testament to have two wives, but not in the New Testament. By the way, it's way before we were married. I'd never even think of having another wife after I married you, Daniel. That was my question that day in, uh, in Bible class. Hey, how, you know, how come in the New Testament, uh, Old Testament, people have two wives? In the New Testament, they don't. Uh, and my old college professor, an old southern guy from Virginia, yeah, I remember like language. His son, son, he said, son, I could give you a verse on that, or I could just give you common sense. Two wives means two sets of in-laws. You want to have one wife. So I won't have you say amen because some of you are sitting by your in-laws, and that would be very uncomfortable, but your laugh tells me you understand what I'm talking about. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Paniah. Now, Paniah had children, but Hannah didn't have any. Year after year. You might circle those two words year after year. We see them twice in verse 3 and verse 7. It tells you how long the discouragement can last in your life. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests to the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Peninnah, and to, all, and to her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. 
Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year after year. Uh, Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and she couldn't even eat. Verse 8, her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Verse 9, once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting in his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. And in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. She made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I'll give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice wasn't heard, so Eli thought she was drunk. And he said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away the wine. And she said, Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I want you to underline these two words. I'm going to show them to you in a different translation in a minute. I'm a woman who's deeply troubled, and I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of the great anguish and grief. And Eli answered and said, Go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. And she said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and she ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Circle that word downcast. We're going to come back to that at the very end of the message. I'm going to show you that word someplace else, downcast. Now the key verse in this whole thing, and here's the interesting scenario. You know, a man had two wives because that was very culturally acceptable in the Old Testament. Uh, One of his wives didn't have children and for years... She lived in discouragement. According to verse 3 and verse 7, for years, you say, well, you know, I've been discouraged for a week, and people tell me, you know, just it's been long enough to get over it. No, discouragement can last for years. And I think probably the better term for it would be depression when it goes longer than a week or a month or a season. But Hannah had been discouraged for years. Hannah was a woman who had a husband. Her husband obviously had enough to provide for her. She was a woman who loved God. She was a woman who was very faithful spiritually. You look at the exterior of her life, and it looked like Hannah was somebody who had it all together. Except in her heart, she lived in discouragement. And one day she goes to the temple, and she's there again, and she realizes this fog of discouragement that, you know, it hits her. You still don't have a child. And she just breaks down, and she goes to a place of prayer where she's visible to the priest. And as she's just crying, weeping, Praying, but no words coming out. She's so overwhelmed. The priest looks at her, thinks maybe she's had too much to drink. And she says, look, I'm not drinking. And in the New Living Translation, she says this. And it should get our attention today. In 1 Samuel 1.15, she said, no, sir, I haven't been drinking wine or anything strongly. I'm just very discouraged. I'm just really discouraged. You know, it takes a lot for someone who appears to have it together on the outside, to come to someone and say, I am really discouraged. But that's what Hannah did. And you know, the first point of overcoming discouragement is just admitting it to someone and letting them know, hey, you know, these ten things in my life are in order. But any time I think about this one thing, my lack of a husband, my lack of a wife, my first marriage falling apart, the child that we lost my job that I lost, how I lost my retirement in the stock market. Anytime this one thing hits me, man, I get so discouraged and I don't know what to do. Discouraged can make you miserable. 
And you don't have to be discouraged about everything in your life. For Hannah, it was one issue. But when this one issue would hit her, and she finally got honest and said, I'm just, man, I'm just really discouraged. Let's stop and be honest today. It's about 11-12 on Sunday, May 27th. If you were to be really honest, are you discouraged right now about something? Is something in your heart, is something in your family, is something in your life that if you could be really honest with someone, you would just say, you know, I'm, I'm kind of discouraged. It takes a lot for me to put my clothes on and come to church and smile around people because if they knew my heart, I'm, I'm just really discouraged right now. Are you, are you like the, the author of Psalm 42? Like when you wake up on Sunday morning, I don't even want to go to church. I'm just so discouraged. I used to love to go to church. I used to be a leader in church. And now I've got to get out of bed. Like, ah. So I asked my spouse, do you want to go? Do you want to go? Well, I was thinking about cleaning the garage. I don't even like to come to church. You know, I, I, was, I lived in so much discouragement, which turned into depression in the last five years before God called Danielle and I to start a church. And I was working at a church that every Sunday morning I would wake up when my alarm would go off and I would lean over to Danielle and I literally would say, five hours till we can come back to bed. I didn't even want to go to church. And like, that was my job. And man, I'd put on my clothes and I'd put on my smile and I would go minister and I would be miserable. If I, if I would have just had one friend that I could have been honest with, I would have said, man, I am so discouraged. So discouraged. Hannah shows us what happens in discouragement. You're just miserable. Hannah was strong spiritually. Hannah was faithful spiritually. We don't know that Hannah had done anything wrong spiritually. Some of you are living in discouragement. And you're thinking, well, it's just a consequence for a decision I made. No, discouragement doesn't have to be a consequence. Sometimes... It's just an emotion that comes over you. And for years she had fought discouragement. And the light went on as I read the story of Hannah, who hadn't done anything wrong, who celebrated 5,000 years later. We have little girls in our kids' ministry named Hannah. Why? Because of this Hannah. And we see, man, when spiritual people get honest, sometimes the honest answer is, I'm really discouraged and it's making me miserable. And you say, what was the answer to Hannah's prayer? If you look at your Bible here, we're reading in a book called First Samuel. That was her answer. God gave her a son. His name was Samuel. He became the greatest high priest in Israel since Aaron. He anointed David to be king, and he wrote the books of First and Second Samuel. So a pretty important guy came out of this discouragement. God was trying to birth in her some spiritual greatness, but, man, she had to endure the misery of discouragement first. And as we look in Scripture at discouragement a little closer, man, what discouragement does to people mentally is debilitating. If you live through discouragement for a long enough season in your life, you go from the misery of discouragement to begin, you begin number two, to, you just begin to live with the mindset of discouragement. And I was reading an article to our staff team two weeks ago by Pastor Rick Warren, and he mentioned the life of Elijah and discouragement in ministry, and it was so good that I grabbed it, I hung it up in my office, I made all them print it out. Um, and, and then as I was thinking about this message, I thought, I need to bring this to my people because this, this, this shows us the picture of what someone thinks like and looks like when they're discouraged all the time. And here's the deal. If we don't learn how to shake discouragement, this is the type of mindset that we develop in life. The misery of discouragement, we looked at Hannah. The mindset of discouragement, we're going to look at Elijah, if you want to write his name down on your sermon notes. And we find Elijah in 1 Kings. So in your Bible, you're going to have... First and Second Samuel. The books after that are First and Second Kings. So, if you're tracking with me, you can turn to First Kings chapter 19. If you're not, it'll be on the screen behind me. But in First Kings chapter 18, we see one of the greatest narratives in Scripture. I mean, a really cool spiritual showdown 
spiritual fireworks. Elijah predicts a drought on the land of Israel, which basically he's destroying their economy. That's what he did. Um, For three years, there wasn't any rain in the land, and they just went broke as a nation. And then he showed up, and that lack of rain was punishment because the people of Israel weren't walking with God. Then he showed up after three years, said, hey, I'm going to prove that God is God. He had this huge battle rumble on Mount Carmel, you know, 400 against one. And he proved that the God of Israel was the true God. But after that event, he slipped back into a time of discouragement where he thought, you know, he thought all Israel was going to follow God. And all they did was get more mad at God. And he thought, I hate this. I don't want to do this anymore. And that's where we pick it up in uh, in. 1 Kings chapter 19. By the way, last week we had five people in our church sign up to go to Israel uh, with us to serve in Israel with the ministry that we've connected with there and to do a little touring next April. Uh, for those five of you who signed up, we'll be in this exact spot. The church that we're working with is in a, the city called Haifa, which is just underneath the shadow of Mount Carmel where, where these events would have taken place. But in verse 19, and we're going to read 14 verses, we see the mindset of discouragement. Now Ahab... Ahab was the king that, uh, that Elijah was fighting against. Jezebel with his, was his wife. They were both pretty evil people spiritually. Um, it says, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done. The big royal rumble, how Elijah won, how, you know, how, how he killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like that of one of them. So I'm going to kill you, basically. You're a dead man. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under a bush, and he fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and he drank. Then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, he ate, and he drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I want you to circle the word here if you have your Bible open. Uh, I want to say this before I go on in this text. What are you doing here? That here... Elijah had run 300 miles from Mount Carmel to Horeb or Sinai. It's 300 miles. Here's what I want to show you. You can't run from discouragement. So I'm discouraged in Kansas City, so I'll move to Chicago. When you get there, you're still living in the here. You see, you can go, you you can think that a place is discouraging, but a person is the one who's discouraged. So Elijah, man, he, he gets someplace safe. He leaves a city where people don't like him. He gets 300 miles away, and here he is 300 miles away, and he's still discouraged. So verse 10, so verse 9, God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites rejected your covenant. They tore down your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. And then there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came, there was a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard the whisper, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out and he stood in the mouth of the cave. Then the voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They tore down your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. You know, I don't know if you picked it up here, but we see four things that happen to our minds. When we live in a state of discouragement, four things happen to our minds that really allow us to stay discouraged instead of moving on. First, we depreciate our value. In verse 10, God says, what are you doing? And Elijah said, I'm not doing anything that makes a difference. I'm not doing anything that makes an impact. My life is no good to anyone. I mean, I've been trying to do ministry, God, for all these years, and no one's listening, and no one cares, and no one else wants to help me. And God, I'm not worth anything. And we depreciate our value. I'm not doing anything for anyone. I'm not doing anything that matters. And when you live in discouragement long enough, you'll look at your role in life and say, it doesn't even matter. And you know what? It does matter. You matter. What you, does, what you do matters. How you're serving God matters. But we depreciate our value. Elijah said, you know, nothing I'm doing matters. I'm not making an impact. God says, yes, you are. Secondly, we underrate our blessings. Elijah said to God, three times, I'm all alone. I'm all alone. I'm all alone. Now, what I believe Elijah knew and God reminded him of is that there were hundreds more just like him. But he had chose not to interact with them. He chose not to recognize them. He chose not to think of them. And here's what he said. He looked at his life and all he saw was a reflection of himself. And he said, I'm all alone. And there's nothing good anywhere. Now, God had just proved himself to be God in one of the most powerful ways that the Bible ever mentions. And Elijah doesn't even say thank you for that. All he says is nothing's happening. No one's helping. I'm all alone. I want to die. So he underrates our blessings. It reminds me of King Solomon. King Solomon, the wealthiest king that Israel ever had, the most powerful king that Israel ever had, the wisest king that Israel ever had, ruled over the largest land area that Israel ever ruled over. Peace is entire. I mean, if anyone was blessed out of all the kings of Israel, it was Solomon. And here's what Solomon wrote in his diary in Ecclesiastes 1.1. This should encourage all of us. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That's the most pathetic statement in the history of humanity. Here's a guy who probably was as wealthy as anyone who's ever lived on planet Earth. Who was as smart intellectually as anyone who's ever lived on planet Earth. Who was as well respected globally as anyone who's ever lived on planet Earth. And he writes down in his diary, nothing matters. Everything in life is meaningless. He underrated his blessings. The good things that were happening in his life, he couldn't see. He didn't care. They don't matter. The discouragement is too heavy. Thirdly, you look at Elijah and we find out that when we're discouraged, we exaggerate our problems. This can never be fixed. It's always going to be this way. Did you see what Elijah said? Elijah told God three times, everybody hates me. Everyone in Israel is trying to kill me. Three times. Everyone in Israel is trying to kill me. I feel like God, like if he would have been eight, Elijah, I feel like God would have smacked him. Like, just stop it. Stop it. Everyone's not trying to kill you. One person's trying to kill you. One person. No, God, everyone. Had, no, one person's trying. Have you ever had your kids act like this? When, the, you know, so there's nothing to eat. There's a cupboard full. No, there's nothing to eat. And he's like, stop it. There's all kinds of stuff to eat. Elijah said, everybody hates God. Everyone doesn't hate you. Everybody's trying to kill you. Everybody's not trying to kill you. One person is. 
See, when we're discouraged, we exaggerate our problems. What one person thinks, the whole world thinks. One little issue becomes, you know, we call it making a mountain out of a molehill. The small things become big things. And then when we're discouraged, maybe this is the biggest we give up on our dreams. Elijah had been called to rescue Israel, be a prophet to Israel. And in verse 4, he told God, I quit. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. He gave up on his dreams. You see, when you're discouraged, you quit believing that the marriage can work. You quit believing that the marriage can be great. When you're discouraged, you, you, just, you don't think your kids will ever love God, that they'll ever be responsible. When you're discouraged, you don't think that financially things will ever get sorted out. You'll never be out of debt. We'll never own our own home. And we'll, you just, when you're discouraged, you just give up on our dream. Who cares? I'm not even going to try anymore. When we get discouraged spiritually, we give up. Who needs to go to church? I don't want to read my Bible anymore. I try so hard spiritually and I still can't get over these two or three things. Discouragement makes us give up on our dreams. And listen to me, if any of these things sound familiar right now, if any of these things are ringing a bell with you, if you're depreciating your value, I'm no good to anyone. If you're underrating your blessings, if you're exaggerating your problems, if you're giving up on your dreams, you're probably discouraged. And the answer is to begin to find out biblically how to move forward out of discouragement before the mindset of discouragement, number three, leads to the mistakes of discouragement. I want to be honest, as I was studying discouragement the last two weeks, prepping for our Bible study today, this absolutely blew my mind in Genesis chapter 4. And I had you circle a word earlier that, that I'm going to come back to. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, so you can turn back there with me if, uh, if you want. Now you see why we hand out Bibles, because we like, you know, some people would call this a sermon. We just call it a Bible study. We're just trying to learn God's Word together in a, in a way we can apply to our life. But in Genesis chapter 4, it'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have your Bible. The worst case scenario of discouragement is, uh, is that it causes you to sin. And you go from just being down to being rebellious to God and the people around you. And if Hannah was the misery of discouragement and Elijah was the mindset of discouragement, the mistake of discouragement would, would be Cain, C-A-I-N, if you want to write that down on your sermon notes. And here's what we find in Genesis 4, 1 through 9. Adam made love to his wife, Eve. She became pregnant. She gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soils, an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he didn't look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was, what's the word there? Downcast. Circle it. Underline it. Highlight it. Remember what Hannah's face looked like? What was the word? Let me hear you. Downcast. Same word. I actually went back to my Hebrew Bible and looked it up. It's the exact same Hebrew word. I wanted to make sure of that before I made this point. Verse 6, So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you won't do what is right, sin's crouching at your door and it desires to have you. But you must rule over it. So Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out in the field. And while they were there in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and he killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where's your brother, Abel? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Here's the danger of discouragement. Discouragement can cause sin in our life if it's not handled directly. You say, what was the, what was the cause of the first, what we would call, person-to-person -person sin recorded in the Bible? 
What was the thing that made the, the first human in history, biblically recorded, that sinned against another human in biblical history? I mean, Adam and Eve sinned against God in the Garden of Eden with the apple and the snake and the serpent. We get that. But the first thing that made a human being sin against another human being, what was it? Discouragement. Discouragement. And you see, when you get discouraged and when you get down, eventually you get to a place where God doesn't matter, God's will doesn't matter, God can't help you out of this, and you react against God and you end up reacting against God's people. I never realized until I was putting together our Bible study the past two weeks that discouragement was one of the key reasons behind the first person-to-person sin in human history. If you would have put it like on a multiple guess, a multiple choice question, I wouldn't have picked that as one of the two or three things that led to the first person to person reaction of negative sin in the Bible. But it was discouragement. It's the same. Cain was feeling the same thing that Hannah felt. But what did Hannah do? Hannah took it to God and prayed and said, God, help me with this. Cain said, I'll just kill my brother. I'll get rid of him. See, the mistake of discouragement is if we don't deal with it, We'll just get rid of God. We'll get rid of all the godly things. We'll get rid of all the godly people. And eventually we'll live our lives without really giving a rip what God thinks, what God's Word says, what God's people and their input into His life are. We don't just make bad decisions because of discouragement. We can make sinful decisions because of discouragement. So how do we overcome discouragement? I'm glad you asked me that question. Ten keys. These aren't going to be on your sermon notes. I, I, I will post these on our Facebook site today so that you don't have to write feverishly. I mean, you can jot them all down if you want to. They're all pretty short. Some of them are short now that I look at them. Uh, but I'll put these on our Journey Church International Facebook page so you can go and copy and paste them. But here's how to overcome discouragement. If you're discouraged right now, you need to listen to these ten. If you ever think you might be discouragement, discouraged in the rest of your life, you need to listen to these ten. If you know someone who's discouraged, you need to listen to these ten. What are they? Key number one. First thing you have to do is you have to find the source of your discouragement. For Hannah... It wasn't having a child. For Elijah, it was that Jezebel wanted to kill him. For Cain, it was that he thought God liked his brother more than him. For our car, it wasn't the teriyaki beef jerky. It was the spoiled rotten milk. You see, sometimes in our life we can think one thing is discouraging us and we remove it and the smell still lingers. Well, probably you found the wrong thing. You have to find the source of your discouragement. Sometimes it's going to be a place. Sometimes it's going to be a person. Sometimes it's going to be a memory. Sometimes it's going to be uh, an offense that was uh, directed at you. Some type of mental, emotional, sexual, physical abuse. You have to find out what is discouraging you so that you can begin to deal with it. Key number two, after you find the source, you have to find the truth. A lot of you are discouraged about things that you, you had nothing to do with. You couldn't have stopped. You couldn't have changed And a lot of your discouragement is internal guilt. And if you find the truth of what happens, the truth is is like Hannah, you this isn't a discouragement isn't a consequence of something you did wrong. It's not something you have to live with. It's not something you have to hide. You see, the lies of discouragement, you can't tell anyone. You need to get over this. If you were stronger, you'd get over it. You read your Bible more, you could get over it. You went to church more. If you gave more, there's all these lies that creep into your mind about what will help you get over discouragement. You need to find the truth. And Jesus said, I am the, okay, I'll try that again. Jesus said, I am the truth. I'm the way, the truth. Jesus said, I'm the truth. See, Jesus can help us with discouragement so we can push the lies aside. Key number three, got to tell somebody. 
You've got to tell somebody. You don't have to tell me. But you've got to tell your spouse. You've got to tell a friend. You've got to tell a prayer partner. You've got to tell your mom. You've got to tell your dad. You've got to tell somebody. I'm really discouraged. Man, maybe the best thing we learned today, we learned from, from Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel 1, 15. She said, I'm just really discouraged, man. Some of you, that's the first step you need to take today. 1 Samuel 1, 15. I'm, I'm really discouraged. So I don't have anyone to tell. Send me an email and tell me. I'd be more than glad to listen and pray and try to help however I can. Key number three, you've got to tell somebody. Key number four, you've got to tell God. This is what Elijah did. You see, you can't pray about your discouragement until you find the source of it. You can't pray about your discouragement until you know the truth of it because you don't even know how to pray the right thing. But when you can really, when you can find why you're discouraged and where you're discouraged and see that maybe you had nothing to do with it, but it's, it's just a heaviness on your life, you can begin to ask God to take it away. Begin to ask God to give you a plan. That's what Elijah did. God said, what's wrong? Here's what's wrong. Three times God said, okay, tell me what's wrong. And he said almost the exact same thing all three times. Man, I'm really discouraged. Key number five. It's a big one. It's a really big one. You've got to remove as many negative people and negative situations as possible from your everyday life. You'll find out the source of your discouragement many times will be found in people, will be found in relationships or failed relationships, or will be in some type of situation that you're dealing with. Now, you can't remove all those. Don't leave your husband. Don't leave your wife. Don't kick your kids out of the house. They'll call me and try to come live with me. Uh, and I've got two of my own. So you, you can't just kick people out of your life, but you have to find those negative situations and you've got to put those aside until you are healthy enough to deal with them. Key number six. Uh, I'm going to give you a phrase here that, uh, that I read in a book, when I, a, a great book that really impacted my life called Leading on Empty. And it talked about leaders who are trying to lead while discouraged. Um, and he said, as a leader, you have to figure out what fills your bucket. What's funny is that they use this terminology in school now. So my kids are filling buckets all the time. Figure out what fills your bucket. What does that mean? Figure out what you enjoy to do. Figure out what makes you smile. Figure out what you don't think about discouraging things while you're doing. And then you've got to do that more. You should have a list. I talked to my dad, my little sister, who's, uh, who's gone through three miscarriages in the last year and a half. She's finally pregnant, 32 weeks. She had her baby shower just south of Chicago, so Daniel and I drove up there. Um, and I played 27 holes of golf with my dad over two days, and we just got out on the course and beat it around. That's, that's one of the things that fills my bucket is golfing, being outside, hanging out. I love to do that. I don't do it enough. And some of you, it's, it's going to be real interesting because what, what might be discouraging you is your, are your finances. And what might fill your bucket costs money to do. So you're thinking, nah, just, I'll never do that. I'll never do this. I just hate my life. You've got to find a happy balance in there between I enjoy doing this. How can I do this without fighting discouragement all the time? So learn what you enjoy doing and do it more. Number seven, this is really crucial. God gave Elijah time to do this. You have to learn to enjoy moments of solitude without feeling guilty. Rick Warren said this in his article, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do when you're discouraged is just take a nap and then don't feel guilty about not working that afternoon or sleeping in. Sometimes you just need to rest. That's what Elijah did. That God allowed Elijah to rest for a few days before he took him. And he even gave him food and said, Ethan, you're tired. Eat this and get some rest so that I can help you. And you have to learn to enjoy solitude without creating a life of isolation. That's where it gets dangerous. 
going from taking a nap to moving into your basement and becoming a caveman. And like you come out six months later and you've got this beard, like those commercials, you know, when your TV breaks and you become a caveman and don't get cable, have direct TV so you don't become a caveman and end up in a ditch or whatever. You've seen those commercials. Don't become a caveman. Don't cut off the whole outside world, but learn to get alone and do things in isolation so your mind can breathe a little bit. Uh, key number eight. Probably should have started with this, but I'll pull in the spiritual ones on the, on the back end. Fill your mind with God's Word. Fill your mind with worship. And these are two things that if you're a Christian will minister to your soul and build you up from the inside out. And this, this, this doesn't mean go read, God's, go, go read the Bible, although I would encourage you to read the Bible. You can, get, uh, you can have your phone, the YouVersion Bible app, you can have your phone read the Bible to you while you're on your way to work. You know that, right? You just set your phone in the car, plug it into whatever you have that it plugs into, and your phone can read the Bible to you. Fill your mind with God's Word. Listen to worship music. You know, the reason that we do worship music at our church is not just to pass the time until everyone gets here so we can have the sermon. The reason that we do worship music is because it ministers to our soul. Let me encourage you to get to church on time. I told Danielle, I can tell that our church is becoming a, a, a church of people that are getting real comfortable because everyone's starting, you know, once you really have a church body instead of people who are just coming to check you out, they feel comfortable getting here 15, 20, 30 minutes late. And like last week we started church and there were like 10 people in here. Oh my gosh. And then we got to the third song and everyone came in. So I want to, I want to encourage you, try to get to church on time. If you have kids, get here early because you know it takes time to check them in. If you like to eat three or four donut holes or five or six, God bless you, however many you want to eat and drink a couple cups of coffee, just come early enough to do that. So at 1029, you're in your seat and that worship starts, bang, and it ministers to your soul. We do worship to minister to the soul, not, not just to hear it in the past time. So fill your mind with God's Word. Fill your mind with worship. There's a couple great radio stations. Again, if you say, I need some Christian radio stations to minister to me, send me an email. And I'll send you three or four that, uh, that you can listen to. Uh, key number nine. Here's what God told Elijah to do. Find somebody with a greater need than yours and help them. I find that when I'm serving people, I rarely am focused on my discouraging situation. When I'm alone, I do. But while I'm in the middle of serving someone in great need, I rarely am thinking about myself. So I'm not saying burn yourself out with serving other people so you ignore your problems. Deal with the things you have to deal with. But live a life serving others so that you can not just focus on yourself all the time. Now, again, a disclaimer. I said this last week. If you've just come from a church where you're burned out, worn out, um, just you've been used up, folded up, and thrown away, then just sit and let us minister to you. It's not time to serve yet. But if you're, if you're healthy... And you're okay? Sir. Um, and then key number 10. It's one of my favorite phrases since we've started our church. I say it all the time. You've got to move forward in life and get past your past. Say the words, get past your past. Say it again. Say it again. You've got to get past your past. It does not have to be an anchor on your life. You can, you can let it go and move forward. Man, if you're discouraged this morning, I want to pray for you. But here, here's the, uh, man, more than discouragement, one thing that will light your soul on fire again and get you going in life, if you're in this room today and you're not a Christian, if you don't have a personal relationship with God, if you can't go talk to God because you don't know God, and you hear me talking about Jesus being the answer, and you say, oh, I don't really know Jesus, then the first thing I'm going to do today is give you an opportunity to pray to invite Jesus to come into your life to help you, to heal you, 
to show you how to live your life so you can have a personal relationship with the God of the universe who loves you. And then after we do that, I want to pray for those of you who are discouraged. And after we do that, we're all going to pray for people in our life who we know are discouraged. And then we're going to go home and enjoy our Memorial Day weekend. But first things first, heads are bowed and eyes are closed all over this auditorium. Please, please nobody looking around out of respect to those around you. And if you are here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you don't have a personal relationship with God where you understand His love, you accept His love, and you live knowing God loves me, He has saved me, He has changed me, and one day He's going to allow me to live in heaven with Him. That today I'm going to invite you to pray a prayer. You say, Christian, I really don't know how to pray. I'll pray. You can just follow along after me. You don't have to say it out loud. You can just pray it in your heart like Hannah did. She wouldn't even say in words. She was praying in her heart. God hears the prayers of our heart. If you're not a Christian today, but you want to connect with Jesus to forgive you, to help you, to heal you, just pray this prayer in your heart today. Dear God, I desire to have Jesus in my life. So today, by faith, I pray that you will forgive me for the things in my life that have kept me from being close to you. pray that you will forgive me for all the sins that I've committed, things that I knew were wrong, that I did anyway. And I ask you today to have Jesus come into my life and to be the Lord and the leader of my life. Today, by faith, I want to have a relationship with the God of the universe. And through Jesus, I believe I can have that. So today, I invite Jesus into my life to be my Lord and to be my leader. Now, with heads bowed and eyes closed all over this room, if you just said that prayer, please, nobody looking around, and you took a big first step today to just overcoming all of life and its hardships, if today you became a Christian, would you just slip your hand up where you're sitting so that I, I can know that? Just slip it up quick and down quick. Christian, I prayed with you to become a Christian. Now I want to pray for those of you with heads still bowed and eyes still closed who are discouraged. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but you know in your heart who you are. And if you find yourself today on May 27, 2012 at 11.42 a.m., like Hannah, that if you were to get really honest, you would say, you know, I'm really discouraged right now. Then I want you to pray this prayer in your heart. Again, like Hannah, you don't have to say any words. Pray it in your heart. God will hear, dear God, I'm really discouraged right now. And I pray that you will help me. Help me to identify the source of my discouragement. Help me to figure out how to deal with it. Help me to focus on your word. Help me to minister to my spirit through worship. Help me to find a trusted friend or family member to tell. And God, help me to come through this discouragement. Because I don't want to feel like this the rest of my life. Help me, God. I'm really discouraged. In Jesus' name. Now lastly, if you have someone in your life, husband, wife, son, daughter, friend, family member, co-worker, who you know is really fighting discouragement right now, I just want you to pray with for them just right where you are. You have to pray out loud. But just tell God their name. God, be with Bobby. You know he's really discouraged. Comfort him today. Just right where you are. Just a quick, simple prayer. Mention them by name to God. God, bless so-and-so. Be with so-and-so. Help them not to be so discouraged. Help me to be a good friend for them. 
Now, God, we thank you for Jesus, what he means in our life. We thank you that you're a God who can help us overcome discouragement, even when it just pulls us down to our very core. We can't even come to church. We don't even want to read our Bible. We can't even be around people. Help us to move past discouragement so that we can have all that you have planned for us in life. We need your help to do that. So we ask that you would help us. And we ask all these things today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. I'm going to ask you to take this.